Welcome to Kansas Rural Center Presents, the Kansas Rural Center's podcast on farming, agriculture policy, civic engagement, and much more happening in the Sunflower State. I'm your host, Ryan Gertzen-Regeer, the Program and Admin Manager here at KRC, and in this series of our podcast, we're presenting reflections from Kansas farmers about the upcoming 2023 Farm Bill and how it could assist farmers with improving soil health and conservation practices on their farms. Co-hosting this episode with me is Zach Pastora, environmental champion and the president of KRC's board of directors. And also joining us to talk about the 2023 Farm Bill are Lisa and Jim French from Partridge, Kansas. Uh, would both of you be willing to tell us a little bit more about yourselves and your connections to farming? Certainly. I'll, I'll start a little bit. Um, besides the farm, which Jim will talk a little bit more about, I've been for the last 20 years, I've been the project coordinator for the Cheney Lake Watershed, working with farmers across five counties on water quality projects. And in the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, we have really focused on regenerative agriculture and how farmers can implement those kinds of practices. So I'm, I'm interested to talk a little bit about um, how farm programs affect those farmers that are trying to implement new practices and learn new things. And maybe Jim can talk a little bit about our farm and his background. Yes, we, um... Well, both Lisa and I uh, grew up in this community and, and, and are, are in families that for several generations um, have, have been been farming here and involved in agriculture and, and involved in, in um, education and in other ways in, in this rural community. Um, so we, we uh, uh, growing up that, in there, we came back uh, after college uh, in 1979 uh, to, to the farm. And um, um, we were married in 1975, and then then we spent about three or four years um, in in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, I was doing some master's work, and Lisa was actually the one that got the ag degree from University of Nebraska, and uh, came back in 1979 to uh, make the transition when when my father uh, retired, um, and uh, and in that time we always did have an interest. In, in conservation um, and in what we called in those days the sustainable agriculture. And uh, we, we became involved in the Kansas Rural Center uh, during the, the mid-1980s. Uh, both of us served on, on the board during that time and, and uh, uh, were, were really involved in, in not only our own farm, farming, but in organizations that had kind of like-minded um, people in, in terms of goals for, for agriculture. On our own farm, we were a diversified farm. We uh, uh, had wheat, um, uh, grain sorghum, uh, grew uh, milo. Uh, probably in 1984, we started doing cover crops using. Uh, in those days, it was more of a more of a, we, before we really learned about um, uh, kind of mixing these cocktails of seeds. Uh, it was more monoculture, so we were doing Austrian winter peas, doing cow peas, uh, doing. Uh, uh, some of the um, um, the the, the uh, sorghum sedans. Uh, we had a cattle operation uh, that, uh, at least from about 1984 through 2000, uh, 2004, uh, w- was a registered uh, um, operation, and we sold uh, um, sold seed stock uh, off of that um, as as well. So we very diversified. Um, during, during that time. Um, and while the farm always remained under our management clear up till the present, uh, we also 
started working a, a bit off the farm and doing some jobs. And uh, uh, Lisa kind of described what she was involved with, but also she was involved with the Kansas Rural Center and the uh, River Friendly Farms uh, program that kind of was a predecessor and well, at least kind of influenced a lot how the Cheney Lake watershed was put together. Uh, in 1998, I went to work for Kansas Rural Center for about six years as communication specialist part-time. And, and uh, uh, what I was doing is kind of writing up uh, case histories, articles, doing radio programs on a Kellogg grant that had just finished, uh, kind of wrapped up about farmers mentoring farmers. And doing we were doing different things like focusing on cover crops, uh, upon marketing, upon setting up uh, vegetable marketing with uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, community, uh, well be like, what do you call it? Uh, CSAs, CSAs. There was a big group in Lawrence that was doing that. So I did that until 2004. And then as that next farm bill was really getting, uh, going and, uh, um, I had a, uh, uh, was contacted by Oxfam America, which is an international development agency. Uh, they had looked at some of my, some of my work. I got acquainted with some of my work on how subsidies impact, um, uh, have negative impacts upon rural communities and also upon uh, conservation. And uh, uh, there was a job opening and they had invited me to apply for it. So I, I worked with the Kansas or with Oxfam America for 12 years um, and eventually becoming their, their uh, uh, lead um, uh, advocacy advisor in agriculture. Uh, and, but I was primarily kind of a lot of my work was centered around uh, the Midwest and the Great Plains. Uh, but I did spend quite a little time in, in, in DC. Uh, but it was always, it was more focused upon those impacts as it translated into international, especially small, uh, uh, small landholders, small holders in, in uh, countries like Vietnam and in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, and, and especially uh, women farmers. Uh, so so that, um, that then completed in 2016. Uh, I did a stint for about a year uh, with the Center for Rural Affairs working on the last farm bill. And, and then, then, uh, since that time, uh, done, done a little bit of consulting, but the farm, we, we kind of came back kind of, uh, re, uh, kind of expanded a little bit. And, uh, now at almost 70 years of age, we're kind of looking the other way. We're probably going to still become involved in the farm on a more, maybe a smaller scale level, but we're, uh, kind of looking at the next chapter and maybe as a chance to kind of do some more innovative things, uh, to really, to really even deepen our work with cover crops, deepen our work with uh, uh, soil quality, uh, and, and that that sort of thing. So that's kind of a long-winded narrative of, of of the farm since 1979. Wow! Yeah, those uh, you've clearly had very cool, uh, interesting lives in in all the different projects you've been involved in. That's that's awesome. Um, I was curious to, to follow up with that a little bit, just in terms of your involvement on, on your farm, what, what are some of the things that you really appreciate or enjoy, you know, what keeps you coming back to your farm and gives you life there? Um, just to kind of flesh that out a little bit. What do you, what do you really love about your farm? Well, one of the things I, Jim, Jim told me the other day, he said I could give up machinery anytime, but the cows are, they're my, they're his favorites. <laughs> And so, you know, 
there, there are just things about farming that are very um, satisfying. Uh, you know, you can really see the results of your work when you do something and you're, you're in touch with everything around that surrounds you. So if it's the, the raccoons or the, the deer that are passing through or, you know, all those things are, you're, you see the sky change, all those things are really uh, satisfying and, and invigorating no matter when you're out there. And I, Jim's going to talk about his cows, I bet. <laughs> oh, not so much. I, it's just, uh, I do like working with, with, with animals and livestock. And, but I think more, it gives me an excuse to be outside and to, uh, and I do, uh, I really, uh, you know, with the, we're our focus lately on soil quality and, and cover crops, uh, especially as we get into biodiversity and how all these interrelated parts kind of come together and how even just one little aspect can have an impact on, on a whole lot of other things that, that uh, I think is really enjoyable. And uh, I think the reason, you know, I, I do like with the cattle is cattle, if used in, in a, in a thoughtful and, and, and uh, um, in a wise manner, can really fit into that. They, they can also be very destructive uh, if they're not used well. Uh, so we've we've been doing a lot of things that I think early on when we with the Kansas Rural Center we got exposed to uh, holistic resource management and some other people like that. And and I remember one phrase really stuck with me. And they they said uh, the largest unexplored region in the universe is goes between this year and this year. And, and so a lot of what I like with uh, uh, about, you know, the being outside and observe is that is that I, I learn how complex and all this thing fits together and you have to use your mind. It's more management. It's more a thinking sort of thing. And, and it, one type of practice is not going to be the same practice that maybe you would even use next year. And that's why we become much more involved in thinking about principles rather than practices. What are the principles that, that are going to guide your decisions? And then once you decide, look at the principles, then you start looking at a menu of what you can do. So all those things, I think it's with, uh, that's not as easy when you're sitting on a loud tractor all day going back and forth. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's easy. Uh, and, that, and I think that's kind of made us lazy. So, uh, you know, I'm much more excited about just going out there and, and, and I get accused of just going out there and gawking a lot and wandering. But, but I, but, but that's, that is, that's, I, that's part of what I really, really like about our farm and the ability to do that. Yeah. Uh, Lisa and Jim, great to be with you. I, I had the privilege of uh, being with you guys out there, your little piece of paradise in Partridge, Kansas. And it, it really is a special place. And, uh, and I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, this, um, this really deep concern for the land and for adopting conservation practices. And, and that came from somewhere. And so I'm curious, you know, how that ethic came about a little bit, because um, that takes work. Uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, alternative agriculture, some, some new things that require a little bit extra practice and, and moving the cows and rotational grazing and, and do adding the extra, um, weight of a cover crop on the land and so it requires work and so i want to acknowledge that but do you find that um so both about your own 
a view of it, but do you find that view in, in your peers and your conversations with other farmers uh, in your watershed, Lisa, or, or other uh, farmers uh, in the area? Curious. Well, you know, um, I, I don't know that I would have said that when we started farming in 1979, we, we did have friends who were interested in those things. Um, but I, I have just been uh, really pleasantly pleased to see the changes within the farming communities in our region as we began to, to the, with maybe the work that the Cheney Watershed has done with, with farmers, um, just exposing them to some of these ideas and principles. And we just have all kinds of farmers around us who are very excited about this. I think they're excited about uh, farming us from a biological perspective and understanding that that they can make management decisions that really, really are have an impact without having, it's not that there's a product that they need to purchase. Um, they're excited about the fact that there's uh, this soil biology that, that they can impact, but also how uh, bird populations or other wild populations fit in with their farm as well. Um, so we're seeing tremendous changes in farming practices in this particular area. Um, once farmers kind of get those principles in their head, it just seems like they really jump on it. I mean, er, early, I think some of our influences might have been um, maybe even started when uh, with Jim's work as a as an English major and just looking at um, writings about agriculture through history and then reading contemporary writers at that at that time, like Wendell Berry. Mm -hmm. And and we were introduced West to West Jackson and um the idea of farming in nature's image, those things have, have stayed with us through throughout our farming career. And it's just real intriguing to see farmers making those changes, people who are very conventional farmers who suddenly are become interested in these principles of soil health and, and the fact that they can implement them in whatever way it's going to work on their farm. So I'm, I'm just quite intrigued by that whole thing. Yeah, you know, I'll just just add real quick though, just an anecdote about Lisa's work. Um, there were we had a um, person that I think he was maybe from Canada, uh, but they did a, a macroinvertebrate study in the rivers, uh, and basically what they were what they were looking at is that what species would you find of these small little critters that you get in your nets. Uh, would indicate cleanliness of the water and water quality. And if you found certain kinds of species, it might be that that's an indicator of degradation. You find other species, it's an indicator of health. And 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 we just, uh, it, it was like we'd have field days and there might be 25 f farmers with their overshoes on or else their shoes off and their, and their pants rolled up with these nets going around and then just getting excited, uh, you know, seeing what's into there and asking questions about it. And, and, and uh, we had a similar experience with uh, uh, the Ecdysis Foundation last year where they came down to our farm and, and we had nets and looking at insect populations. Uh, and again, it was just not only the kids were having fun, but, you know, farmers and farmers' wives sweeping those nets through there and looking at it. It's so it, it, it just shows how you, you, this, this approach is intellectually stimulating. It's not only intellectually stimulating, it's physically stimulating. It's different than sitting in a tractor cab uh, for 12 hours a day. Um, and, and there was just real enjoyment. It just, there was just is a sense that, you know, this can be useful to me, but it can also be fun. It can add some, add some real quality 
to my interaction with the farm. And, and, I, and we've, we've seen that over the years with, with the kind of the soil quality uh, field days, uh, bringing in speakers and that, that, that uh, you know, that we just get really big turnouts, uh, people coming from, from all over. So that, that just to me, that's a, that's a quality issue. And I think with people, a lot of farmers are hungering for that. Yeah, I think uh, that's a really good point. I think uh, farmers have long understood that the farmer's best friends are uh, pollinators, you know, helping their crops succeed and, and some of that. And if we expand that to, you know, the entire plant community or, or insect populations or mycorrhizal fungi and, the, and microbes underneath the soil that, uh, that, that when we try to grow something that, you know, uh, something of nature it benefits itself uh, from uh, uh, the whole ecosystem. Yes. So, yeah, good points. So you mentioned using uh, some cover cropping on your farm as well as I, I think some rotational grazing with your cattle. Um, what are what else uh, do you find to to be helpful, or do you appreciate um, in terms of soil health practices on your farm? Are there other Things like no till, yeah, strip tilling, or we don't, know, intentional we don't, we, I guess we'd call it zero till. Uh, we don't, um, uh, so we're not doing any, any strip till. Um, we're, um, and we're not organic, but we are really finding ways that, that, that the practices and the mixes that we have, uh, we, we both are able to, one, maybe capture any type of, of nutrients that may have not been used. Uh, by previous crops uh, and and have not and because we have residue have not washed away down into the river so so that at least it gets calls and said my my water smells like a fish uh, and 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 then uh, but also we are able to maybe fix nutrients or use plants that are able to release the nutrients that are in the mineral base of the soils already uh, there so it, it it that has an impact upon. Uh, the economics, uh, but it also has the in impact upon, uh, you know, environmental quality there. So a lot of what we're doing, in, whether it's cover crops or the rotational grazing, uh, which we're, we're not uh, doing like the mob grazing, but we're doing the kind of the principle of take half, leave half, so that that plant has a chance to rest, recuperate, and you don't lose a lot of a root mass. Uh, I think we could make it notch, notch it up and go into more intensive, uh, and that's good. But but we've seen, especially this year, an intense drought. How that practice over the years has has given us uh, a, some real resiliency in the face of, of little or no rain, uh, and we have uh, uh, you know good cover. It's holding the moisture that's that what little moisture that's there. It's shading the ground. It's keeping uh, the soil temperatures down. And, and uh, so that, uh, you know, those th those things, you know, kind of have an impact. Yes, they are. Um, they, they are in economic, uh, but they, they also have a real high environmental impact. Mm -hmm. So and, and so really, uh, I mean, using those cover crops in and these principles in a way that we're reducing chemicals as much as we can. So it may be herbicides too, using yes. them to to cut weed populations and provide mulch within within our crops. Um, so yeah, I think that 
that captures a lot of the practices that we've we've probably tried to implement. You know, I think the, the practices are still all, all chosen from those five principles and we'll, we'll see how well we pass the test here. You know, you keep armor on the soil, you have biodiversity, uh, you have uh, living roots, uh, you, you incorporate uh, um, animals and, no and then and zero reduced till, tillage. Yeah, reduced tillage, re reduced or no tillage. So, you know, that will, if you keep those principles in mind, you know, then then you kind of look at the practices that are going to fit uh, uh, on that. So if you have a certain thing crop you're going to grow or a certain thing like that, then then you you look through those principles uh, to determine what are the best ways to achieve that without uh, that that will enhance our soil quality. And that that one principle of uh, reduced tillage is also really less disturbance. And I like to think of that one in terms of not only tillage, but it might be other things too. It might be the chemicals that you're using or, you know, what is going to at least disrupt that biological life and how can you give it more stability? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's an excellent note. I, I have to go back and listen to this and take notes on all the, all the, <laughs> all the things you were saying. Um, when you've, talked with other farmers in in your community i guess KR, at krc we hear that for many farmers to do additional soil health practices they face some challenges like the time it takes to learn a new system and the cost involved and and lack of technical support maybe from you know government um, agencies or groups are when you talk with farmers or work with other people in your community do you hear of others, or do you feel like you face challenges in those ways that prevent you from kind of doing what you want to for soil health on yeah, your farm? This, this year was a drought, but that was a challenge for everybody, no matter what. And I think we're, I think we still are a little bit ahead of, you know, of some of the, some of the more conventional farmers around us, uh, just in, in moisture savings. Um, but uh, working with farmers, what I, what I often hear is, well, it's just, it's learning these new techniques and learning understanding how those principles can be applied on their farms. That's, that's one of the main things. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's helpful to have some cost share to implement some of these practices, nice. uh, especially when you're starting out, just, it gives you um, less risk. Mm -hmm. And if you can reduce that risk for a few years, then you feel a little more comfortable trying those things and you're liable to have a disaster the first year or two. So if you can get some cost share to help you with that, I think that's a useful thing. Um, you know, I think another barrier is just the time to do things. It changes the way that you manage. So you maybe have to do more time thinking about things or with livestock, you may have to do more, more um, moving, moving cattle around a little bit more than what you've been used to. You know, we often have, um, I often work with producers who have just you know, taking the cattle to pasture in the spring and they pick them up in the fall and they might check on them in between or check the water, but it's, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of management involved there. So that's, uh, that's, that's a little bit piece of it. What other barriers have you? Well, I, I think, I th and think also, uh, and, and Lisa touched on it. Well, I'm a real firm. I really believe in, in um, 
creating slack in the system. Now, what I mean in slack in the system is, is that if everything, if you know, if your margins are so tight and everything is your debt load is too high like that, you don't have a lot of slack. You don't your your decisions are going to be based upon what you have to do each day to meet that yield goal, to meet what the banker wants and that sort of thing. So, you know, we've really I've really appreciated the equip program. Um, and, and when, when I can get, when the funding is actually there, but when we've used it in the past is that it gives you about a, maybe a three to five year window that you can work with some technical advisors. You can, you can implement these systems and get them in place, learn about it. And then, you know, I, I'm firmly believe if it's going to work, you, you, you need to kind of move out for you. you, you get it in there and then it's going and then, and then you, 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 you kind of wean yourself. Uh, that's that was, and we we've used we've used Equip quite a bit in dollars. That, and and with Lisa's position, we were able then to leverage the city of Wichita, a fund that they they put in there because they have a real interest in the Cheney Lake watershed. Um, you know, a big portion, and at least let's talk about that of their, of their water comes from there. So uh, that I think has been a partnership that really has help motivate farmers in this area uh it's not just government it's it's kind of public private and, and working together and farmers actually manage this or, or oversee this program it's a board of, of farmers and landowners so mm -hmm. so that that's been really helpful and then third the third thing i think is really really helpful is that in the kansas rural center has been involved in this in a long time is creating mentoring and groups of that you can put together farmers and when they do a, well, like say a workshop on pollinators, you get other farmers and people involved that come together, you meet each other, you can provide, they, you know, people provide their experiences, their failures, their triumphs, uh, and, and you create kind of networks. Having other farmers that can say, oh yeah, I suffered that too, don't worry about it, you'll learn and, and it's gonna you know, give you that kind of support. So that kind of mentoring of, of farmer to farmer uh, and, and that I've seen, I see it also working like with women's groups and that as well, the women farmers and that. So that's kind of the third thing. So government uh, participation, uh, public-private uh, uh, partnerships, and then farmer to farmer mentoring. Yeah, I'd say that farmer to farmer or peer to peer uh, learning is a, is a, tremendous thing and it's something that has to go along with those other pieces because um, you can't do it just with a cost share program um, and i'm going to give you an example of that in within our watershed in the last couple of years we've had a special initiative in the through the equip program and what it did was it it paid um, cost share for farmers who were uh, if they were not already implementing the practices they could get some some payments for for each practice no-till cover crops um, crop rotation. And then the fourth one is, was grazing cover crops. So it's different than, it's not available through all equip programs. And then they could also get kosher to put uh, a water source on cropland, which is not, typically you can't get kosher for that either. And, it, you know, it just sounded like a, it was going to be a great program. And I, I still feel like it's got some potential, but what it was missing was, um, Anybody could sign up for that. And typically there were people who are not already doing those things. So, you know, they didn't have a lot of experience with it. And they didn't have, uh, even though NRCS has been really supportive of uh, soil health practices, 
their staff are all learning these things too. So they didn't, they don't, the, the farmers that signed up for that didn't have a lot of support. And so we, we felt like we had to pick that up through um, the Cheney watershed to begin to help those farmers understand what principles they need to be looking at. You know, how are you going to uh, implement uh, cover crops into your cropping system and your crop rotation? And then how are you going to do grazing in a manner that promoted soil health rather than just feeding your cows? They're, they're two different kinds of practices. And so it went something that sounded really good, um, could have the potential for some, some real uh, failures with someone who jumps in there and they're promised a whole lot of money to do something, but they don't have uh, practical experience and they don't have someone to help guide them. So the, by, by putting those farmers together or having them talk to farmers who are already doing those practices, they have a better potential to succeed. So I think those things have to be married together in some way. Um, USDA and NRCS have not been very good about providing that, that particular piece of the service. And if there's some way we can begin to encourage that, I think that would be, that would be huge, whether it's through extension or if it's through existing groups like the Rural Center or the Cheney mm -hmm. Watershed or mm -hmm. whatever, Kansas Soil Health Alliance, whatever group can provide that, um, that piece of peer-to-peer -peer learning, that would be a huge benefit. And I would say in the past farm bills, um, the, the role of technical support or the aspect has, has really been, um, you know, um, challenged. Uh, and, and I, you know, you know, I, I, I used to be uh, very early on, I was involved with, um, with the work of the original conservation security program. And, and I, and I think it's, you know, and it, when it was introduced by Senator Harkin back in, in, the, in right, right around uh, 2000, or just a little bit before that, uh, that concept of replacing a subsidy program with a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a um, subsidies that, that, that paid for environmental services rather than for production. Um, and, but it, it turned into a kind of a, a complex beast. Um, and, and, and lately with kind of staffing shortages and with a, a, even a, a greater amount of, of kind of paperwork involved in that, uh, it's, it's, it's been one that I, that I know NRCS staff, technical staff, they don't really much care for. You know, they, they put it and, and, uh, and, and I, I can certainly see why. It's why I think in the next farm bill, we have to make sure that we have the support there uh, so that 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 technical assistance, you know, kind of broader approaches that Lisa talked about that we, we, we provide that in, in our in our services there. It's because I uh, right now uh, we, we are you know, just overloading these people like a lot of that. And, and, you, and, and it's hard to kind of keep people on staff and, and there as well, or to even to be able to get the education they need to continue education to, to for that that support. Um, so that I think as we look at the next farm bill is, is that, you know, it's great to put in a brand new program and great to have these all these kind of things. That, well, they sound great on paper, but if you don't have the, the full kind of look at the whole system, we were talking about whether the mentoring, whether the technical support, whether the, the, the education that 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 and, and then finally, the bringing along the thing about the, the public private partnership is that the a lot of the citizens in Wichita now are understanding more of what water quality is all about and how it's connected 
to their dollars going to 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 to, to farmers and to land managers, uh, maybe eighty miles away, um, and they so they, they you know it's so it's you know our, our, our urban population and those that maybe aren't directly involved in agriculture, we have to bring them along as well uh, in 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 this in this whole process. I think that's a key point there that if we're going to ask more of uh, the agriculture community farmers in, in the sense that we're not as we're, you know, depending on them to grow crops and, and animals um, for the variety of uses that we use. But if we're going to ask them for a public benefit to make sure that they return the land in a better shape uh, for years to come, if we're going to ask them to put the carbon that's being released out in the air back in the soil to preserve uh, uh, our water bodies, uh, rivers and lakes and streams, uh, um, to build the ecosystems underground and improve soil health, that they're going to need the support. We're going to ask them for more. We, ought, we owe them some more support uh, from both public sources and the and government and cost share programs and technical expertise funded by the government, but also, uh, you know, raise them up, uh, help them out uh, community-wise. And uh, I think we all achieve better success as a community when we help each other out, the buddy system, if you will. Uh, so uh, anyway, that's, those are all key points. Uh, I'm, and I'm glad I was going to say, I was glad y'all got to benefit from the EQIP program. I did see the new uh, Inflation Reduction Act as a lot more money uh, for the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. I believe we have uh, uh, a quarter, let's see, billion dollars for the rest of the fiscal year, 23 uh, we got $1.7 billion in 24 and goes up to $3 billion in, in fiscal year 25. So all that will uh, help, uh, you know, so provide financial support for, for uh, helping farmers do the right thing and protect the soil. And, and interestingly, you know, Kansas Rural Center's long time said, hey, let's try to make sure we spread the wealth out. Everybody should get a little piece of the pie on some of these programs um, because uh, just in 2020, uh, I saw the, the data I saw that, that was that uh, somewhere in, in like 18% of farmers um, in conservation stewardship program were funded who applied and 23% of EQIP applicants actually got money. So uh, that's not good when, you know, 80 some percent of uh, people eager to participate uh, don't get that benefit. Yes. Any thoughts there? Yeah, we uh, we seem to get uh, quite a few funded in our particular area where we're working. So I'm not sure exactly how all that's happening, but I know those are ranked. Uh, I know sometimes there are projects that are not good that we don't necessarily want to fund. So there is importance in ranking. I would I will say that, um, okay. but but we need a better understanding of. How do how maybe how do we help guide some of those? So we've got got good projects. I yeah, I would love to see more of it go into soil health. I you know I see great things with farm that farmers are doing without any cost share, and they're they feel like it's still a benefit to them without the cost share. But but that but but what I also see is that in order to make a difference across the nation with the vast majority of farmers, 
we may have to have that cost share available as a little bit of a carrot to induce people to try new things and to implement some practices. Either, like Jim said, they don't have the slack in their system to, to try take those things on or to take the risk, or it may be just that they're happy with the system they've got, even if it's not a very good one for the, you know, as far as, uh, as the broader benefits, the societal benefits that we're hoping for, whether that's soil quality or water quality, uh, they may need a little bit of encouragement to get them to try some new things. So I think it's going to maybe take some hard thinking. Not It's not just let's just fund more, but let's fund it in a way that encourages people to really do good work. And whether that's because we have better peer-to-peer networks to talk through some of those things, or we've got better technical support. Um, sometimes I see the local office struggling just to get the paperwork done, but they don't have time to meet with farmers. And so we've got to be really mindful of making sure that we've got plenty of money there to, to uh, have staff to help help the farmers with those, not just get them signed up and get them funded, but let's have them there so they can follow up and see whether or not things are going well on the farm and give them some suggestions. Yeah. Yeah. I think that feedback, I think a lot of times if, if you, if, if a farmer comes in and has the ability to say, well, here's what I'd like to accomplish. And then you have a staff person instead of them just going and say, I'm going to do this practice and I'm going to apply for this and equip. It might be, you know, asking the question, what do you really want to accomplish? What is it that's that's doing? Is it, you, maybe you're asking for a waterway or terrace, but maybe are there other ways that we you could do this rather than just taking a, a machine out there and pushing the soil around? Uh, maybe be just introducing them that maybe we could do this in another way so that you don't have to do that. Maybe well, why do you what's why is the what's the problem? Why you need the terrace? Uh, what's changed in your soil that's making it wash the way it's doing? Maybe it's a matter of 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 putting cover on the ground, learning about how living roots and these things can re- hold and retain water, uh, and it's not going uh, running in a in a in a in a rill or a gully uh, out out your field. And so it's it's um, uh, you know those are the kinds. Of, and then also you know what are the uh, that you have to look on a watershed basis and a bigger basis. What what's the priorities that are that are there? And and you know, if you look at funding for for projects, you know what in the whole watershed type setting is going to be the most beneficial there. And then you can communicate to farmers. That's what kind of like in the Chini watershed, it was, we were getting phosphorus, too much phosphorus in Chini Lake watershed. So you go out there and then you start talking with farmers and, and doing some, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, workshops and sessions so that they know here are the kinds of practices that, that can benefit your, your operation. Uh, but also, meet these longer range uh, goals that we have about uh, taking away runoff, holding water in the soil so it's not uh, contaminating uh, people downstream and and that. So it's, uh, you know, there there are a lot of factors in there that with the increased funding, you know, we we need to say how is the most wise way to use it. So as you said, Zach, so that we can spread it as, as far as we can in the most effective way to as many people as possible as many operators as possible and to, to meet those goals. Um, and, and so, cause you know, a, a terrorist system can, it can swallow up a lot of funds really quickly. Uh, it takes a lot of money to run those, those big old machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas with the cover crops, and even though it's a longer term investment, uh, it may, you know, take, it take a longer to, to maybe to do that. Uh, but it's much more cost effective. And in the long run, 
that farmer's going to see that he's improved his his resource base, and I uh, we we firmly believe we'll we'll see an impact upon profit. Kind of following up on on some of the the training and and cost benefits, we've talked to other farmers, uh, KRC over the last year or two and and had some of those same suggestions kind of along the lines of maybe a three to five year cost share and mentorship program for someone trying to get into cover crops or a different practice for the first time, you know, really having that intentional support, peer-to-peer support, as well as some of the the economic uh, cost deferment to to help buffer those first tough years. Um, And then after that, you know, some, a lot of people were saying, you know, you get three or five years in and you really start to see some of the added uh, ecosystem benefits from what you've been doing. So I, yeah, I, I hear that echoed across the state from a lot of farmers. Actually, yeah, I would, I would say yeah, that's that's, that's what key. you're saying there. We would we would echo it as well. Uh, what we've heard a little bit more uh, is that that maybe the five year is probably the more uh, uh, realistic in the, in that is to uh, where you're you're really get, get, getting past a, um, uh, the, you know, not only the learn, learning curve but the impact upon the land. I think it'd be interesting to talk with you know the government uh appropriations people who probably want to say yeah we'll give you one year and we say okay give us five years and we you know compromise at three or something but five ideally would be amazing yeah for sure well at least to have most equip programs like when we were doing uh we set up a grazing system and uh, i think we had payments uh for three years but then we had to have kind of uh, you know oversight and and you know uh, and of that management for an additional two years and had good access to technical support uh during that time and so it it i don't um, think there i don't think it's that long anymore you know, but, it might but, not be. <laughs> but you can anytime you could go in and request the technical assistance yeah 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 but i think what we don't we don't want to see and some of the negative uh things around equip and I've actually talked to farmers that have, that I that have, have gave me firsthand evidence that it happens is that um, uh, the environmental working group uh, they would say they had a little map and they'd say the lights come on the lights go off lights come on the lights go off and with that so you get your money for three years you put in the practice and the money stops and the practice goes away uh, uh, and 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 uh, we we had some farmers at a field day were like cover crops and and they said yeah we we did this and and participated and um, but after the the three years when the money stopped we stopped and I you know and, and again it's a kind of a mindset uh, sometimes farmers have the mindset uh, that that uh, you know we we, we, we not we not only farm that we not only farm the soil we farm the government uh, and 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 I, and I think that needs to change as uh, uh, as well. So we, you know, I I think you know we 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 really do need to figure out how to give uh, assistance to give a step up to help with that get, make making that step up. Uh, but but if it's if it's if it's good and it's good for your land, then then there comes a point where you you know you. You, like you, you go on and you and it, and it stays there. You know, we the, the grazing systems, in fact, that we put in, uh, the ro- and the rotational and the buried the pipes that we buried and things like that. We we had assistance. We kind of went a learning process in that, but they're still in place after 25 years, um, and they're still you know we're, we 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 maintain those and they it, we we had some really good help 
learning about it and getting things to put in and we're still learning but but just to go ahead and stop uh just because uh, we don't get the, the the check to help with pay, maybe pay for the cover crop or that um i think that's that's a burden that that or something that the um our our commodity programs um kind of created that sense of just just wait we'll get a check um and 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 that that i think is is some is is something as farmers we need to really kind of get get over that uh, a bit and, and i think that's something that peer-to-peer networks can also help um if you're if you're trying something new and you're only getting feedback from the people who are questioning why in the world are you trying that then you're pretty ready to quit as soon as you're don't, not getting a payment anymore but if you're if you're in a group that's continuing to learn and sharing their examples and they're and encouraging you when there are failures I think you're more likely to stay with it so I think that's a really important piece of it kind of an example of of the, the farm talk at the local local coffee shop can, can right. impede some progress right. in those ways <laughs> what you're saying yeah yeah I definitely hear that and and have experienced that in our you know farming community where I come from. Um, yeah, Jim, the slack you were talking about, the slack in the system, uh, really seems like it's it's necessary or beneficial to have if you know folks are are getting that money for three years, like you said, and then they stop the practice after that. I mean, that's that's almost uh, more certain if there's yeah. no slack in their system to to have that flexibility there. And so, yeah, I I have never actually really heard it posed in those terms exactly before, but I really like the, the image that, that evokes that you talked about. So, yeah. You know, I, it's, I, it occurs to me that it wouldn't be too extreme to try to recalibrate the system a little bit instead of, uh, farmers getting a, a, a break or a, a commodity payment incentive to grow a certain crop. Maybe there's a there's a sweetener to, to grow a certain style, um, as opposed to the getting paid for the crop, getting paid for the conservation value that to have that inherent public benefit. So t- um, to me, that that kind of makes that's sense. a tough one. Well, <laughs> it's a tough one. It's been a dream. Uh, you know, I, I know Senator Harkin's staff came up with a lot of that with input from from sustainable ag, uh, different sustainable ag groups in, in, in the last, and when they were putting together 1998, uh, 99 bill. And, and there was a lot of, uh, of talk about that. And there was even, you know, there for a while, freedom to farm with, 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 uh, Pat Roberts, there was some, some really talking back and forth that, that delinking payments from that distorted trade and, and that conservation might be a great way to delink uh, that. So there, it's just, one of the things is just, how do you measure it? How do you make it accountable? How do you, and and how do you do it in a way that in, if it's not relatively simple, uh, you know, uh, the Catholic theologian, Peter Morin, who was also a great uh, agrarian said, we have to learn how to make it easy to be good. (laughs) And, and, you know, if, if it's not, if we if we don't, it's going to be that you know that's that's the real problem here. I think what you're saying, Zach, is a dream we all have. Uh, you know that that uh, you know we're growing more than crops. We grow clean water. We grow uh, you know uh, healthy soils. 
we grow clean air resilient communities resilient communities and 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 and, and children that we want to stay and be part of those communities there are all these things that 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 we grow and none of that shows up on the in your net worth you know none of that um I, and i think it, but, and, and none of that's accounted for in a commodity payment or a you know any of those right. particular kinds of payments but but there's a lot of power yeah. within the groups that are represented there and and it's difficult to make that change but i think you're on a, on a good track absolutely <laughs> well i i have a one question and i'll turn it back to to ryan but i hope i'm uh, i'm not going to lose my host privileges here because uh it's kind of a big a big question but i think it's, it's pretty uh important to ask you two specifically you got into farming uh what was in 79 in the 80s uh, got kicking things off here i'm curious um you know the progress from then until now what you've seen what you've learned, and then what concerns you most about the future? I, I mean, have we made major strides in sustainable agriculture in that time? I, I can't help but think where we're at now where, you know, every every night on the evening news, there's some sort of extreme weather climate disaster going on. Yeah. And, uh, and I just got to think that makes it just even harder on already a tough enterprise that is farming. And so I'm curious, you know, uh, tell us about how, you know, uh, what you, you, you've come to know in your time uh, uh, doing this stuff. And as you look into your crystal ball, uh, what we can think about going forward. Well, I'm going to give a real specific example because I'm going to look at the watershed. Um, that reservoir, Chini Reservoir, was put in in the mid-60s. And uh, in 1979, 25% of the sediment that went in, is in Cheney Reservoir came in in that one year, in one event. And it came in at a time when um, it was would have been in the fall when we were raising wheat and every acre in, basically in the watershed was probably tilled down to nothing and there was no cover. So things are things are tremendously different in our watershed now than they were then. They're much more positive. We have... We have a lot of CRP, so we've got uh, native grasses growing in, in a lot of areas, but we've also got a lot of farmers using cover crops. We've got more diversity in our crops that we're growing, so we've got lots of different kinds of things. I think even though we've become more intensive in our agriculture, we are mindful of the amount of fuel that we use and the amount of chemicals that we're putting on, so we're trying to reduce those. So I'm I'm hopeful that we're they're really getting better. My my uh, no-till friends and my organic farmer friends are talking about the same kinds of things. They're they're getting closer together all the time, trying to get get to a point where we're we're similar kinds of practices. So I'm encouraged, but with but with this climate change that we're seeing, all these extreme events, it is harder all the time. And I think that may push us even more to begin to think about what what do we need to be doing what are we going to have to be doing and we got to be become more resilient all the time uh we got to create farming systems that are less susceptible to these big rain events or drought events and so that's going to push us a little further to looking at some of these same principles that we're talking about i think they're they'll only help us help us but also help everybody 
I, and I think I agree a hundred percent with what Lisa says. And we have to have a, we have to have a global outlook. We have to know how this, this is not just, uh, a, a, you know, on a one watershed, but it, it impacts things all around the world. Um, I think my biggest concern, Zach, is that, you know, when, when I was working on climate change, uh, legislation cap and trade in the, uh, Oh, mid, uh, probably maybe 10 years ago or a little bit more, 2000, probably 2008, 2007, 2008, through there. Um, when we started out, we had John McCain, we had Pat Roberts, we had several key Republicans uh, basically uh, trying to counter a carbon tax by, by putting in what they felt like was a more business oriented approach to, to, to climate change, approaching climate change. But everybody on either side of the aisle was very convinced that this is something we had to address. What I'm concerned about is, is creating wedge issues around something that really we need as, as, uh, as, a, whole, as, as a whole people to, 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 to uh, work on. Um, and, you know, I'll give you exactly, I think the, the climate's really in the, in the Congress has really changed. But before I retired from, from Oxfam uh, to come back, I worked really strongly and closely with Tim Hulesamp on the Global Food Security Act, which was basically uh, uh, helping to, uh, to work on agricultural principles, uh, investing in agriculture in, in, in least developed nations. And in looking at why that was important for, for us as in the United States as well. And, uh, um, you know, I could go in the office and I could say, Tim, there, we're, we're going to disagree on a lot of things. But you and I both know that we don't want people to starve. We both know that we like families where children can grow up and, and, and maybe have a chance of a livelihood that will be equal to or, or maybe better than what we experienced. We both know these things. You could bring up these common denominators and then show how we could link and sometimes and say, well, okay, if you don't like this, maybe you can create a roadmap. Just like I think John McCain and Pat Roberts created a roadmap for climate change one of these days. I, I, and I think that's, to, to me, that's one of my big concerns is that things that, are, that, that impact our common humanity, we, we, we've kind of gone to the part where now where we, we won't come together and say, okay, and that's why, like with the Cheney Lake watershed, they came to the farmers and said, here's our problem. Here's, we got phosphorus in the water. The people are not liking it. And, and uh, you know, one alternative is that we just come down here with a heavy hand and say, you fence off your creeks, you do this, you do that. But they said to the farmers, you know, if we provide some help, will you help solve it? We'll provide technical assistance. We'll provide, you know, research. We can provide all these things, but you be the problem solvers. Um, and, 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 and what's, what I think is, you know, we're lacking right now is that kind of way that we can kind of discourse and realize the problems we have, there's not just one way to do it, which means sometimes we have to, uh, it, it, whatever, whatever party you're in, you might have to eat crow once in a while. And it's not a bad thing. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. You, you know, we learn that we just, and sometimes listening to the, to other people's concerns and opening our hearts there. We find, yeah, you know, they really down deep. They they, they are concerned about a lot of the same things we are. Uh, so I don't know how we how we solve that, how that goes about. But 
one of the things that I was always heartened by, it kind of depressed me in some ways, is some of the people that were the most influential in the soil health business were firm libertarians. And they didn't want the government in there at all. You'd, and and, and uh, I think it helped having some of those people as part of our group <laughs> in, in there. So and that, that to me is the biggest barrier. Is we go, one of the biggest barriers I see, Zach, of, of meeting some of those goals. Like Lisa, there's so many good things happening, but we have to learn to work together and be tolerant and, and, and not just jump to be judging other people all the time. And I'm talking about from my own perspective, not looking at other people. So there we go. <laughs> I really like how you wrapped that up, Jim. Uh, I had a question we didn't ask about kind of the the dueling levers of government of incentives versus regulation and, and how you, you push people to change. And I, I feel like what you described there is almost a third way of, mm-hmm. I mean, an incentive could be kind of a passive approach. And I think the active approach of, of maybe not regulating or punishing with a heavy hand, but incentivizing people and also calling them to be right. involved in solving the problem, actively involved. We want you to help us solve the problem as opposed to us, you know, telling you how it has to be done. Let's find a common solution together. I think that is a, a really much better better way to, to think about it, right? That that inspires me a little bit, I'll I think say. You summarized so, it well. Yeah. Yes. Well, we are kind of getting close to the end of our time here. I would ask uh, if there's anything else that, that the two of you or you, Zach, want to ask, but uh, if, if uh, you, Lisa, or Jim, have any other things you want to leave the audience with um, about the farm bill or, or agriculture or just anything in general, I guess. I'm, I'm hopeful uh, about the things that we see ahead. And I, I know that we've got some big challenges with the, uh, with sort of these extreme weather events, but also sort of the divisiveness within our country. But I I am hopeful. I I see farmers from lots of different backgrounds that are interested in doing new things. And I think there's some real opportunities for us here. And uh, whether they're within the farm program or or outside the farm program and people are just finding them on their own, I'm, I see, I see good things ahead. So I'm, I'm encouraged and I'm hopeful that we're going to see good things. I have to be encouraged or else I would just just be crying all the time. So I, I really and just seeing, um, you know, groups like the Kansas Rural Center. And I've seen it evolve a lot over the years and and continuing to reach out and and bring in, uh, in the next generation and younger people and and those perspectives. And and I know sometimes it's tough, but but, uh, you know, it's it, it, this is one of the few places where we can be intergenerational. And and I and I think that's uh, um, that really needs to you know we need to we, the older people need to learn to appreciate diversity and what's coming about with the younger people but also with the younger people there's a lot of there's a lot of collective memory uh, in in some of the others and, and that and and this is you know we're at a point in our lives now that we're we're probably uh, going to be stepping back and maybe things that we're, but we're still going to be, want to be actively involved in learning things and doing that. And, and, uh, so that's, that gives me hope that, um, and one of the things we need to do is this intergenerational communication and, and, and learning from each other and not just intergenerational, but inner, uh, you know, cultural diversity as well. And, and that, so, uh, you know, 
I, I love cooking shows. So I've been watching Chef's Table and they go all around the world. And I get to see farmers around the world and, and having their kind of concerns, whether it's in, in, in Central America or, or, or in, in, in uh, uh, you know, Eastern Europe or things like that. I think that, that the more that we can learn from each other, in, not intergenerationally and also culturally, uh, and, and especially with indigenous people, there's such a collective amount of wisdom of people that were on this land for thousands of years before Columbus ever arrived and, and tapping into that wisdom uh, of, of land use, because there was a lot of a uh, lot, lot of experimentation and ups and downs there that I, that I think we can learn from as well. So, yes, I think that there's where a lot of my hope lies. And, and, and just talking with you two gives me big hope. <laughs> Well, we are certainly ways. very thankful. <laughs> Thank you, Zach. <laughs> yeah, we're certainly very thankful for your contributions over the years. So I I will take some of the initiative from, from your comments to just say, uh, to advertise that we do still have that River Friendly Farms assessment um, that that uh, is on our website. And folks can check that out if you want. It's kansasruralcenter.org slash other hyphen publications you can find it there um as well as a bunch of other projects i think you two might have had some hands in so um a lot of legacy here at, at krc from from your involvement and we really appreciate it zach do you have anything else no thank you very much a lot of good thoughts i'm gonna have to go back and re-listen to this but it's been a pleasure to be with you both uh and uh to be continued Absolutely. Thanks so much. Nice to meet you, Ryan. Zach, as always, keep up the great work. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Uh, the Kansas Rural Center Farm Bill podcast series is brought to you by generous funding from the National Healthy Soils Policy Network. To learn more about NHSPN, visit soilpolicynetwork.org. Thank you again to our co-host, Zach Pastora, communications coordinator, Charlotte French Allen, and most of all, thank you to you, uh, Jim and Lisa French, um, for letting us interview you for this episode. To find out more about Kansas Rural Center and our work, visit kansasruralcenter.org. And please join us at our annual Food and Farm Conference in Salina, Kansas, on November 11 and 12 in 2022. We hope to see you there. Like and share this episode with friends. And if there's something you'd like to see featured in our podcast feed in the future, please reach out to us at media at kansasruralcenter.org.